So this morning, as we spend some time in Psalm 19, so a, a disclaimer before I really get going. Psalm 1, and those of you who have been with us in this series and have been here for a while and have heard me preach through Psalm 1 before, uh, you'll know if you've been here a little while. If not, you're getting some new information. Psalm 1 is by far, in a way, my favorite psalm. I think it has no rival personally. Of course, you know, trying to compare the word of God to the word of God is like comparing diamonds to other diamonds. You know, it's like, no, this diamond's amazing. No, this diamond's amazing. If it's an amazing diamond, it's an amazing diamond. But for me, personally, Psalm 1 is by far and away my favorite psalm. The distant second for me in the psalms of best psalms is Psalm 19. It is incredibly profound. And you have in it what the olds, the ancients, the divines from long ago would call the two books of God. We don't talk about that quite as much anymore as we used to. It's kind of fallen a little bit in disarray in Protestant circles. Um, but for the longest time, Christians would discuss the two books of God. God has written two great books One book is greater than the other book, but he's written two great books. And the first great book that God has written is the book of creation, all things that have been made. And he has written down in creation pictures of his glory, that his glory might be seen and known through that which has been made. Paul talks about that in the book of Romans. And in the first half of Psalm 19, the first six verses, we have the book of nature, the first great book that God wrote. But God has written another book, a greater book, the greatest book, and that is the book of his revelation, his scripture, his word. And in the second half of Psalm 19, we receive the picture of the value and the beauty of the second greater book, this book of his revelation. And so this morning, we're going to take a, a moment and we're going to walk through this and we're going to see the value and the emphasis and the worth of these two great books that God has written. So first, in verses one through six, the heavens are telling. And this is an incredible thing. If you've spent much time observing the heavens, stars and the sun and the moon and the planets and and the circuits that they go through, You'll you'll notice they actually don't say anything. David points that out here in just a second. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but he actually points out that he's being poetic. Like it's weird, kind of in the middle of a poem, he stops being poetic and he's like, hey, the the sky really doesn't say anything. Just want to let you all know that. okay? just in case you're confused. It doesn't really say anything. But it says an awful lot at the same time. And so what does it say to us? Predominantly the created order, especially the heavens. What does it say to us? Well, David, just he, he just goes all in. First verse, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. You really do have to exchange The glory of the creator for the foolishness of the created thing, not to look out into the created heavens and not receive some sense of the glory of something other than yourself. It's really hard to do. 
I, as some of you know from my past testimony, spent a little bit of my younger life in a state of agnosticism, flirted aggressively with pure atheism for a while till God radically converted me. And I will tell you from personal experience and essentially from all of the conversations that I've ever had with anyone who embraces pure agnosticism or atheism. You have to educate yourself out of the knowledge of God. The natural go to of all created people. When they see the glory of the heavens, they see the glory of the created realm, they see the interconnectivity of the world that we live in. When you look through the microscope and you look through the telescope and you make observations, the overwhelming response of all humanity, even if it isn't the one true God, is some sort of thank you deity, whatever that deity may be. And then you got to put a lot of work on the backside of that to try to get that to go away. Because the heavens are telling of the glory of God. It's made that way. So that it overwhelms the small human person with their insignificance. And drives them to think and to feel and to believe the eternal size chasm that is within them. That, uh, that Solomon spoke about. The eternity that is set in the heart of man. It drives them out from themselves to something beyond them. Now, in our fallen broken state, often that leads us to idolatry. Rather than to the one true God. And we'll get to that in a moment. But you have to put in a lot of work to go shh to that voice that's screaming inside of you. There is someone, not something out there greater than yourself. The heavens tell this. The expanse of the created order declares the work of God's hands. Paul makes this very clear in Romans chapter one. And then here, David does that funny thing. Day-to-day pours forth speech. Night-to-night reveals knowledge. They're talking. They're speaking. But there's no speech. There's no words. Their voice is not heard. He's like, in case you're missing it, it's a metaphor. Don't go outside and go. You're not going to hear anything. At least not from the stars. You'll hear the cicadas and you'll hear the frogs and you'll hear house parties. But you won't hear the stars saying anything. You won't hear the sun saying anything. You won't hear the moon saying anything, but they're saying quite a bit. It pours forth speech. It reveals knowledge. It is unspoken, yet at the same time, it is loud and clear. And what is it that they're saying? Their line, their utterance. This sound that it's making in verse four has gone out through all of the earth. Their utterances to the end of the world. There is no one. Nowhere. That does not hear. This speech of creation. All people throughout all time. When they spoke any language. Under any government. In any corner of the world. Have heard this story. Now, as fallen creatures, we have a profound ability to distort what this story means. The Egyptians, when they looked up and they saw the sun, 
decided that their Pharaoh would be the physical representation of that sun in their own kingdom. And they had a sun god and they had a moon god and they had a. You just fill in the blanks. In our brokenness, we misrepresent and misunderstand the story that creation is telling us. We all have a habit of doing it this way. And so David, understanding that, takes the most prominent thing in our solar system. The thing that has the greatest level of glory and influence and uses it as the example, uses it as the comparative metaphor. He talks to us about the comparative glory of the sun. Notice here at the end of verse four. In them, in the heavens, he's placed a tent for the sun. Which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, meaning it's glorious when the bridegroom in this culture would come out of his chamber. He was decked out for the wedding ceremony. He looked glorious. He looked amazing. He looked great. It rejoices as a strong man running his course, the athlete who is superior at his craft. And it's rising is from one end of the heavens and it's circuit all the way to the other end of them. And there's nothing hidden from its heat. Friends, the, the, the sun in our solar system is the most influential object that is there. Without it, n- nothing lives. We have no life. If you're just talking scientifically speaking, we have no life without it. Nothing escapes its influence. And this is the reason why David is using the glory of the sun at comparatively to the glory of the Lord. Because there's some parallels that occur here. And if you go back to mythological lore, typically the sun is the first thing deified. There's a reason why so many cultures worship the sun. It's profoundly influential. Profoundly. There's absolutely nothing in this world that is not influenced by the power of the sun itself. And of course, David would not have known this, but we now know and understand this. There's actually a stretching across time that the sun does because of its distance from our world. I think about this every time that we get to take a trip to the beach and I get to watch the sun rise over the edge of the horizon next to the ocean. It takes eight minutes for the light of the sun to reach us where we can see it here on our earth. So when I see the sun start to crest across the horizon of the ocean, I'm looking eight minutes into the past, but experiencing its heat in the current moment of the present, very much like God who's in the past and in the future. He sees them all together. There's a remarkable reason why the sun gets compared to God here. Because you know what? When it comes to the Lord, nothing is outside of his influence. And without him, there is no life. And he knows the end from the beginning. But to put everything in its right context, notice what David does. Who is it that makes the son obey? It is the Lord. As awesome and as powerful as this object is, God's the one that has a tent for it. 
And God's the one who tells it when to come out and tells it when to go in and tells it what circuit it needs to run and tells it what pathway it needs to take, etc., etc., etc. It is insignificant compared to the glory of the Lord. And yet without it, all of us would die. Which makes us how significant then? And yet, it says elsewhere in the Psalms that we've been made a little lower than God himself. It's incredible. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. But friend, do you want to notice what's absent here? The heavens did not tell me how I can be redeemed. They told me that there's a glorious being out there that's made all things. Someone that's in control of all things that are in existence. But I can't look at the sun, S-U-N, and know how to be saved. I can't look at the circuit of the moon and of the stars and of the heavenly celestial bodies and understand God's redemptive purpose for me. I can't look into the darkness of the night sky and the glory of the daytime bright and understand the work and crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I need the second great book of God for this. And so he makes a transition midway through and he begins talking to us about the perfect law of the Lord beginning of verse 7. We now have a different kind of story. And so let's look at the nature of God's word, because all of this last half is about God's word. All of these are synonyms for the word of God, law, testimony, precepts, commandments, judgments, even this idea of fear. So what is God's word like? God's word, according to verse seven is perfect. It's perfect. Are the heavens perfect? It's really easy. Guys, it's a softball. Come on. Everybody should get A on this quiz. Are the heavens perfect? No. They're not. They're not. It doesn't take long to study how the heavens work to see that there's serious problems. And how the heavens work. They work well, but there's some really weird messed up stuff that's just not great about the heavens. Like, be super glad that we're not near an emerging black hole. Like, you know, that would be really bad for us. It's kind of a kind of a not good thing about the system. (laughs) You know, hey, this black hole starts to form everything around. It just gets sucked into it and destroyed. It's like, hey, mm, it's not too cool. Heavens aren't perfect. They're groaning. It even says it in Romans that all creation's groaning for redemption. When we were broken, it was broken. But you know what the word of the Lord is like? The law of the Lord? It's perfect. It's without fault. It is blameless is what that word means. The testimony of the Lord is sure. The the word of God is not only perfect, but it's sure. That means that it's reliable. You can rely on it for what it expresses to you. Listen, if you're going to turn to the scripture to try to build a flux capacitor and go back in time in your DeLorean, 
You won't find that information here. Some of you picked up on that. Some of you are a little too old for it. Some of you are a little too young. Those of you right in the middle, thank you this morning. Okay. I, I know I'm right in the middle because every time I fill one of those online things, I have to scroll a whole lot further than I used to, but not as far as others that I know. So I'm, I'm in the middle. Amen. That's right. If you're going to try to build something, do some engineering, do some modern scientific stuff, do some medicine type stuff, probably not the guidebook to go to. But what this was written for, the purpose it was written for, and we're actually going to get to the purpose it was written for in just a moment. It is reliable in what it's written for. What it was given to us as a gift for, we can lean on it for these reasons. It's not only perfect, it's not only sure, but it's also right. I love that. It means it's straight. It's level. There's a correctness to it. As you continue to walk through the first few verses here, 7 through 10. It's also pure. The word of God is pure. And what I like about this word for pure is it technically means that it was sifted. It was purged. You know, there's a whole lot of other writings out there that at one time or another people thought should be in the Word of God, and they're not. Well, why aren't they? Why not? And of course, you hear all kinds of crazy conspiracy theories that would actually only work in a world like the Internet existed. Which when they decided on this stuff, the internet didn't exist. You know, it's like, well, you know, a group of people got together and they looked at all the different stuff and they decided which way they could have the best control over people. And so they, they left some of them out because they knew that that wouldn't give them the kind of power that they needed to have over people and be able to control their lives through this crazy religion about Jesus. And I'm thinking, do you think people hopped on a plane and went to a Google chat room and like downloaded all the copy files of all the ones and like ran it through a supercomputer, to like filter through to determine which ones were the best ones. And these are going to help us have control while they were being put to death for their faith in Jesus in the first place because they were completely powerless in the culture that they lived in. You really think that's how this that has absolutely it's so far fetched. It's crazy. Listen, do you know how they determined they looked at it and they said, hey, did an apostle write this? If not, probably not the best thing. A prophet, mm, I don't know if we should lean on that. If they didn't write it, does it line up with what we know the truth of God's revealed word is? There's a centralized message here about Jesus and his crucifixion, his resurrection, and the kingdom of God coming on us and the need for man to repent because we're broken. Does this line up with that in meaningful ways? Like they had legit reasons why they would say this is in and this is out. It's been sifted. It's It's pure. It's not contaminated by things that don't need to be there. It says, as you continue through, that it's clean. It's clean. That means it's ceremonially and ethically pure and right. And then it says it's true. It's firm and it's trustworthy. This is the nature of the word of God. It is perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true. Now, let's talk for a moment about the work of Of God's word. What does it do? We see what it is. But what does it do? There's six different references. That are all kind of synonyms. But all have slightly different meanings. To talk about God's word in this text. From verses 7 through 9. Six different ones. And each one of them. Kind of talks through a way. That God's word works in our lives. So first he starts with the law. The law. What does it do? It restores the soul. 
This idea of restoring the soul is the concept of turning back or repentance. What is it that leads to repentance? Well, Paul talks about it in the New Testament, as do other writers, as does the Old Testament. The law of God. God's ethical and moral mandates for the world. They don't save us, but they show us that we are broken and that we need to turn away from sin. Paul himself said it. I didn't know about certain sins until I read in the law that this was wrong in a sin. And then it convicted me that I had committed the sin and it caused me to recognize I needed to turn away from my sin. That's the beauty and the value of the law. It restores the soul. It brings us to a place of repentance. I read the word of God and it does something for me that looking at the sun and the moon and stars has never done. I've never gone outside and looked at the celestial bodies and go, I need to repent of my sin. It's never happened. But I sure have read the word lots of times where I walked away from it going, I need to repent of my sin. Second testimony that makes wise the simple. It gives wise action for the naive, for those who are not yet mature, those who have not yet grown up in the faith, those who have not yet produced the fruit of faith. In other words, there's a transformation of life. The testimony of the Lord. This certainty, this surety, this this proven reliable testimony of God It brings about transformation of life. And I want you to notice, friend, please follow the progression. I'm not going to keep pointing these out. I don't think maybe I will by the time we're done. But notice the progression. It starts with my need for repentance. And it moves to transformation of life. Friends, the reason so many people who call themselves Christians struggle so remarkably is because they get these things out of order and they try to transform their lives before they ever repent. There is a flow to how this works. And you must turn away from who you are in Adam and turn toward Christ in God by way of the spirit and the gospel. And then and only then in the repentant life can you have transformation of life. Can wisdom come and be applied to you? And then it says the precepts here of the Lord, they're right and they rejoice the heart. There brings about rejoicing of the heart, gladness in the inner man. Look again as as we stack it. There is repentance that takes place because of the word of God. And there's transformation of life that takes place because of the word of God. And there's gladness in the inner man that takes place because of the word of God. Whereas before there was only doubt and sorrow. And suffering and idolatry and rebellion. Now there's gladness in the inner man. And then he says there's these commandments. Commandment of the Lord. It's pure. It enlightens the eyes. This enlightening of the eyes. This giving of sight where there was only darkness before. I have been hit by the word. And it causes me to repent. And that repentance leads to a transformation of life. And that transformation of life leads to a gladness in my heart. And all of these together now cause me to be able to see clearly who God is. Who I am. What the world is like. And what Christ has done. And it creates a cycle in my life of more repenting and more transformation and more gladness of heart. The word of God does this for me. Notice here, he says the fear 
of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. This language of enduring forever means to remain unmoved, to not be pushed off of a space, to be stable and on a platform. When we're seeking lowercase t truth and we're having hashtag my truth, hashtag your truth. It's unstable. It's sand and it shifts and eventually it'll cause you to fall. I want to let you in on a little secret this morning. The universe doesn't care about your truth. The universe doesn't care about my truth. Because likely your truth and likely my truth are just really weird ways of saying we've lied to ourselves. There is a truth. One. In fact, it's personified in Jesus Christ himself. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. It's the declaration that he's made. God has given to us sound, foundational, unmovable truth. And it is the gospel. And so what happens to us? The word hits us and we repent. That repentance leads to transformation. That transformation leads to gladness in the inner man. These things open up our eyes that we can see clearly who God is and who we are and what Christ has done. And that causes us to then stand on an unmovable truth that endures forever. And it's connected with fear of the Lord, honor, awe, reverence, respect, an overwhelming sense of submission to an authority. I want to be my own God, lowercase g. I want to rule my own life. And in doing so, I wreck and ruin everything. But through the power of the word and the move from repentance to transformation, to gladness, to sight, to an immovable reality, I now have a reverential awe of God that never would have been there before because of the work he has done for me through Jesus that now causes me to abandon all the lies I have told myself and to stand on God's truth. And then finally, the work that God, God's word does in our lives, these judgments that God gives, they are righteous altogether. They are everlastingly righteous. I long to be righteous. And every time I try to be righteous in my own strength and in my own power and my own wisdom, I compound my own wickedness. That's what I do. But when the restoring, transforming, gladdening, enlightening, unmovable word of God impacts my heart and my life, when it's a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, when it is a two-edged sword dividing even the deepest parts of me, when it is a consuming fire, when it is a hammer that strikes deep, and all of the other metaphors for the scripture, when it's a powerful wind, etc., 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 do you know what the word of God accomplishes through the spirit that lives in me to the glory of Christ and the majesty of God? It 
makes me righteous. And it's such a remarkable gift. Such a remarkable gift. And so we see what it is. We see what it does. And now let's look at the impact that it has. So verse 10, moving toward the end of the chapter. Let's let's look at the impact that God's word has on us. Again, none of these things have ever happened to me looking at the moon. They just haven't. Well, preacher, you don't know. I just never feel any closer to the Lord than I do when I go out into the wilderness. Did you take your Bible with you? Because trees won't do this for you. And the sun and the moon and the star. I love being out in the wilderness, too. I geek out with the heavenly stuff. I take pictures through my telescope. Like I ask for Christmas for equipment to take pictures through a telescope. I'm that guy. And never has that stuff ever done any of these things for me that we just said that the word of God does for me. So what is the impact that it has? The word of God creates a strong desire in us for the goodness that the word of God brings. It's a cycle that we get on. It's a circle that we jump in. These things are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. And they are sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. And do you know how you get on the cycle of this desire and the sweetness? By doing it. By being in the word. I don't like to read. I don't like to study. I don't like to memorize. I don't like to. Man, some of it's weird and it's old and it seems kind of boring. I don't get it. I'm confused. Yeah, I, I don't care. We've all felt that way at one point or another when we tried to study the Bible. If you haven't felt that way in a long time, then do your devotion this week in the genealogies of numbers. You'll understand that some people struggle with certain parts of the Bible. It's okay. But how do you find this desire? How do you find the sweetness? How do you find the worth of it? By being in it regularly. Friends, this modern, which is really not modern, it's Greco-Roman, but this, this instant gratification mindset of our culture of I should do a thing and immediately I should find the highest levels of enjoyment when I do it is nonsense. It's almost sinfully nonsense. There is a call to righteous effort on the part of God's people. And not everything will be immediately satisfying to us. In fact, some of the things will be a little off-putting and difficult. Think of the three metaphors that the New Testament uses for the Christian. Most regularly. You've got the sheep one, so let's slide that one to the side. Because sheep are just dumb animals. That's all that's teaching us. You're just a dumb animal. And so am I. And if left to me, I'm going to go off the side of a cliff and fall on a bear's mouth. You know, so thank you, shepherd, that you're keeping me from doing that. But now let's talk about the interactive metaphors. Farmer, military person, athlete. I have never met someone 
who really did those three things with gusto, who the first day, man, we got to wake up at four in the morning. And by the time we got out to the field to start working the crop, it was 99 degrees with the humidity of 87, the heat index of 112, and the sun never stopped. And we didn't have time to stop and eat all day long, and we were nearly dehydrated. And by the time we got back at 9 o'clock at night, like walking through the field in the dark, it was the most amazing experience I'd ever had in my life. Can't believe I took so long to do it. Never met anybody the first time they did it. They loved it. Every farmer I've ever talked to where they teach their kids to do it, it's like, well, how was it when you first had your kids do it? They said it was terrible. All they did was complain and moan and talk about how tired they were. And da, 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 da. You know why? It's just not fun. It's not instantly gratifying. A whole bunch of guys gung-ho, I'm going to be a soldier. And then they go to boot camp. I hate this. They come banging that thing in the morning. They wake me up and they drag me out and we're doing all these push-ups. We're running and we're chanting and we're, people are shooting at you in the thing. And they're like, you got to stick your face in the mud. This is crazy. Athletes. I like playing ball, but do you like training? No. The answer is no, by the way. Anyone who ever says to you they like training, they've either been doing it a really long time or they're lying. No one ever just goes into the gym and like truly trains, like train trains, like to become a competitive athlete train. Nobody ever does that the first day and goes, that was great. No, no one does that. You know what they do? They go, I'm not coming back tomorrow. That was awful. They have to have somebody that's been doing it for a while say, no, 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 please come back tomorrow. Eventually, it will be worth it. Friends, there's a desire that is set into us by the word that only the word can set into us. And friends, the word won't set that desire in us if we are not being obedient to the Lord by participating in the word. It's a beautiful cycle. And eventually there will come a time where you'll open up God's word and you'll go, man, this thing is hammering me, but I love it. But it takes a lot of time. But it creates this strong desire and a strong desire for what? Notice what it does, this impact that it has. The servant is warned. That's the first thing out the gate, this impact. David, what impact has the word had on your life? Well, it's warned me. Warned you of what? God's severe judgment for wretched sinners. Oh, okay, great. You know, like that's not really like the advertisement that you would normally think somebody would throw out there. David, you're going to convince me to be a student of the word. What does that what's that do for me? Well, it warns you of God's severe judgment against your life and your wretched sin. Yeah, no, no, thanks. I'll pass. But that's where he starts. By it, the impact on your life, you're warned by it. You know why he starts there? Because we all need to be warned by it. You want to know what all of us have in common in this room here today with all of the differences and all of the uniqueness that we have in our lives? We, apart from Jesus Christ, are all wretched sinners, fallen in Adam, separated from a holy God. We need to be warned by God of the wretchedness of our choices without him. All of us do. And it doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. It doesn't matter how long you've walked with the Lord. David's overwhelmingly great sin with Bathsheba. It's not like that happened day one. Oh, we get it. We can let that slide. He was super immature in his faith. No, he was the king by this point. Living in relative peace. Receiving the full brunt of God's blessing in that moment. 
And then he did what he did. He was not warned in that moment. We all need regular warnings from God about how destructive we can be to ourselves if we think we have the strength to stand on our own. And David, of all people, knows this. He says, I come to the word of God because I need to be warned. He says, I know it intellectually and I know it from experience. I need the presence of God's truth in front of me at all times. Second, it also gives discernment. It gives insight. Who can discern his errors? The answer is we can't. We can't. There's a lot of things that I get wrong. There's a lot of things that I do wrong. There's a lot of things that I come up short with. Do you know who usually points those out to me? Not me. Not me. The details of the story are inconsequential. The point of the story is what matters. Long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. When I was young man, still living at home, not yet married, still going to school. I was working on a thing. And I kept trying to get this thing to do what it needed to do and just wouldn't do it. I was getting so frustrated. And I kept trying and I'd try something else and I'd try something different. And I just, I just kept trying, kept trying. I could not figure out what I was doing wrong to make the thing work. And my stepdad came in. He could tell I was getting really frustrated. And he goes, hey, man, what you working on? I told him what I was doing. And he said, he said, you know, do you, do you want just one little, and I was like, yeah, you know, anything, anything. He said, well, you know, if you take this and you turn it over and then turn it this way, I think everything will work better for you. And I was like, so I turned it up to it. Done. Like five seconds. Done. I'd been banging on that thing for hours. I could not figure out my error. Who can discern his errors? I can't. But someone from the outside, looking in, with much greater levels of knowledge and understanding than I have. By the way, God has all knowledge and understanding. Comes in and he says, hey, this is what you're getting wrong about this. And here's how you fix it. And now my errors have been discerned. And I ask God to acquit me from hidden faults, convict me of my sin. Keep me back from presumption. And there's this acquittal of sin that comes through the knowledge and application of God's grace. And friends, where do we find the knowledge and application of God's grace? He's given it to us right here in his word. And so what does David ask God to do to him because of this perfect law, because of this truth? He says, I want you to transform my speech and my inner thoughts According to your word. Listen to this. Listen to this. Let the words. Where does David go? Like after all this is done, he says, okay, if this is really going to happen to me and your word's going to be this awesome and it's going to do these great things in me and it's going to have this massive impact on my life. Where do I want like obvious noticed start? Like when people say, hey, look, you're different. Where do I want that to be? Let the words of my mouth. That's where David starts. Friends, that should be profoundly convicting probably to all of us. Because most of us, if we were going to start with some sort of transformative thing, 
we probably wouldn't start with how we talk to and about each other. We would probably find a lot of self-justifying reasons to be able to say whatever we want to say, however we want to say it. And David says, I tell you what, Lord, if this is going to be true, if your words really all of this and does all of this and has this kind of impact, then let the words of my mouth. That's where he starts. And the meditations of my heart, the inner reality of who I am, what I think about, what I dwell on, what I ponder. Let them be acceptable in your sight. Man, that's a request. The things that I mull over on the inside and how I express those things on the outside, let them be transformed to reflect you according to your word. That's powerful. So friends, as we close this morning, I want to leave one sentence. One sentence. Creation, first half, let's tie it all back together. Creation is a story of glory. God's word is a story of redemption. You say, Philip, do I not see God's glory in his word? Yeah, you do. But you can see God's glory without his word. His word says so, but you can and you should. But you cannot see God's redemption without his word. Creation is a story of glory. God's word is a story of redemption. And Jesus is the king of creation. But he's also the word of God. He is both God's glory and God's redemption. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for this truth. That in creation you've displayed your glory. And Father, let us look at it. Let us enjoy it. Let us learn to read the lesser book, the book of creation. Let us find ways to marvel at how glorious you are and the things that you've made. How you've made them. How insignificant those things make us feel. How small they make us to seem. And then Father calls us to glory in you through your word. As we realize that you sent your son into this world like us. To forgive us of our sins. To redeem us from our brokenness. To cause us to reflect your image rightly. Father, thank you that creation is a story of glory. And that your word is a story of redemption. And that both are found in your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.